Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Live from Las Vegas, it's time for you to be Talking Movies with America's most award-winning film critic, John Barber. You're being, John, you're being so gentle. I've heard you give reviews and you're so rough, you're saying. <laughs> How would you have evaluated your own work uh, in some of the films that you did prior to, uh, <laughs> prior to The Longest Shot? I mean, Much like... better than you, my friend. <laughs> Our next guest is one of those rare talents who has something to say and can say it funny. He's a writer-performer on the new Laugh-In and one of the most popular, outspoken, and entertaining personalities on the local news here in Los Angeles. He's won a half a dozen Emmys as a film critic and host of his own shows. Let's welcome Mr. John Barber, right over there. Hi, this is John Barber, and welcome to Talking Movies. Lucky show number seven, and lucky indeed, because today we have an absolutely fabulous, fabulous guest for you. Doug, how are you today? I'm doing very well. Thank you, John. Appreciate it. Well, listen, here it is. We have to pre-record this because you're so monumentally busy. It's a fantastic Sunday and very sunny and clear and warm here in Las Vegas, and I should be playing golf, and you should be somewhere bowling. Instead, you and Don are spending another weekend working. I don't know any two people who work as hard and as dedicatedly as you two do, and let me ask you a question about this business of working. How is the resettling and the rebuilding in Texas going for you and Don? Slow. We have, uh, I, every, every week I have to write an email that's not a kind email. This uh, upgrade should have been finished the first part of like six different phases, should have been done in July 1st, and now we're approaching December. So it's a little slower than we'd hoped. Oh, well, uh, you know, I so appreciate you, and I hope that I don't, you know, set things awry for you because sometimes we have to pre-record this at very, very odd times. Do you live uh, near Dallas? Where do you live and where are you rebuilding and resettling in Texas? North of Houston, about 35 minutes uh, in a little town called the Woodlands, which is a beautiful place to live. It's approximately... I think three hours or four hours south of Dallas. Well, anyway, I I can't tell you how much indeed I appreciate you two guys because you are the two busiest people I know. And in show business, the busiest woman I know happens to be our guest. She's been over in over 250 films. She is inexhaustible and totally inspiring and here she is right now the incomparable d wallace (laughs) d 
D.D., how are you? (laughs) Yes, listen, first of all, I got to tell you something. Honest to God, of all the people that I've invited to be on the show, one of the talents I wanted to talk to the most was D. Wallace. Well, here I am. Okay, well, the reason was, even though we're talking movies, you are one of these rare talents that has a whole lot more to talk about than movies. I now, do. Even though, that, even though that you've starred and featured, been featured in 250 of them and many of them classics by now, it has always been my impression, Angel, that somewhere along the line, when you were reaching this magnificent stardom, you had the thought that you would like to do something a little different, a little more meaningful, and you became a best-selling author, and you became one of the best teachers and most sought-after public speakers on the planet. So, And also, you're one of the very, very few smart people I know who has done a TED Talk, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. They, they keep turning me down. And, you know, the thing that I admire above, uh, there are many things I admire about you, but, and I'm not mentioning your age, but at your age <laughs> in Hollywood, you are one of the continually most creative and productive talents in that town. And it seems the more energy you expend, the more it expands for you. And I would like to talk about that a little later because I know you're going to touch on it, touch on it later. So, Angel, the truth is that you are a born actress, you are a born writer, and you are a born teacher and public speaker. And the title of your new book is called Born. Yes, so, it is. Ta-da! Ta-da! So there you go. So let's get to the beginning of where you were born, what your parents were like, what your childhood was like, and some of your early dreams and ambitions. And if Ricardo Montalban was sitting next to me, he'd say, oh, you're looking good. (laughs) Well, thank you. There you go. I was born in Kansas City, Kansas. Uh, I lived there all my life till I left New York to follow my fame and fortune dream. lived with a very creative family. Everybody in my family was creative. My mother was a really great actress in local theater. She was a secretary by trade. Um, My father was a salesman and um, my grandmother was a grandma. But at church, my mom... uh, directed and produced all the religious plays Wow! would give half hour, just amazing what we call now monologues. Um, Grandma would do the costumes. Daddy would do the scenery. Um, So So, so this, this is where the inspiration and talent, you know, who was also a secretary, Greer Garson. Oh really? Yeah, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, but in any event, I thought maybe your ambition to be an actress might have come from early television. Might have come from no, early came, from came from my mom. From, that's wonderful. So yeah, you were born with that. 
So uh, I was born being a creative. Yes. Okay. I wanted to originally be a dancer. And I was a dancer with a couple of small companies in Kansas. But you did something your mother didn't do. You went to New York. Yes. So uh, it was a tornado that took uh, Dorothy out of Kansas, (laughs) but it was just ambition on your part. So aside from admiring your talents of your mother, what actresses did you aspire to be like when you were watching either television shows or movies? Well, you know, we watched a lot of things. We, we only watched positive things and Westerns. We watched a lot of Westerns at TV, but um, we watched a lot of Catherine Hepburn and all the greats from the 40s and 50s. Those were the people I... Oh, you that, that I pulled uh, knowledge from. You want to really? It was my mom. It was really my mom. You want to hear something really funny? I believe in serendipity. I don't know that I believe in much else, but that and and I seem to have this affinity for you because when I was talking to my wife the other day about you, who is also a huge fan, and she said, "Who do you think she aspired to be as an actress?" And I said, "You know." With her personality, I think she wanted to be more like Catherine Hepburn or Olivia de Havilland and not like Joan Crawford, Mommy Dearest. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. You're so, right. Okay, You're right. so you, you go to New York. How old were you? And did you try to get into a theater group or did you hunt for an agent? What is it that you did? Well, it's kind of a Hollywood story. First of all, I graduated from the University of Kansas in education and psychology. I taught a year of high school. And then I said, if I'm ever going to get out of here, I better go now. So my mother was very supportive of me. And um, so I, I went off to New York, but we got the New York Times in the library at the high school I taught at. And there was a big article that Hal Prince was looking for an unknown for a little night music. So I wrote him this very cheesy letter and sent (laughs) even cheesier picture. And three weeks later, his secretary called and said, Mr. Prince got your letter and your picture and he'd like to fly you to New York to audition. Oh, my goodness gracious. I know. So I said, oh, well, when does Mr. Prince need me? And they gave me the date. And I said, oh, that's perfect. I already have a plane ticket to come in that day. So Mr. Prince, you know, he would have flown me first class (laughs) and everything. So the day I landed in New York, I took everything I owned, put it in a cab, said, can you take it to this address, please? And it all got there. And I went to Rockefeller Center to audition for Hal Prince. And I got down to the last five girls in the acting and the dancing. And then they said, all right, Mr. Prince would like to hear you sing now. And I went, oh, I didn't know we had to sing. Oh my God. And his assistant said, well, dear, it is a musical. So my first day in New York, I sang Happy Birthday. 
Oh my God, how corny. <laughs> yeah. Is that, is that the only song you knew? Pretty much. I mean, I had no music with me. I, you know. Did you get the job? Actually, it was his suggestion. <laughs> I said, I, I didn't know yet. He said, that's all right, honey. Sing a happy birthday. Oh, my God. So the company has looked at me and he said, what key, honey? And I said, <laughs> somewhere in the middle. <laughs> Did you get the job? Hell no, I didn't get the job. Oh. But, you know, for the first day in New York, I got pretty damn far. Oh, that's that audition. Well, there you go, serendipity. You got the plane ticket the same day you lost the audition. So Yeah. That is okay. So now how long did did you ever end up getting an agent or a part in New York? Oh yeah, yeah. So uh, tell us how. Uh, I I went to an open call and got a, a manager and I went to a Halloween party with a guy, and at the end these three people came up to me and they said, listen, can you stop by our office Monday? We think we might like to work with you. I went, oh, what do you do? Well, they were the top commercial agents in New York City at the time, Marshfield's agency. And they signed me. And a month later, I had $4 and 10 cents or something left in my checking account. I had called my older brother to see if I could borrow a thousand dollars. And I booked a national airlines commercial. And this is a United airlines commercial. And this is what I did. I was the friendship girl and that's what I did. And I made $20,000. You know, oh my God, a, you're kidding. I'm not kidding. And and I I became really their commercial queen. You know, everybody wanted that blonde Midwest, you know, girl next door quality back then. Well, and no girls I next door. No girls. Hey, Angel, no girls next door look as good as you. Oh, yeah, I am the girl next door. Okay, so how long did you stay in New York? How old were you when you cashed the $20,000 check? Well, it came in a little at a time. Oh, I was, oh the residual. But I made, you know, uh, all total. You and then I went in- on to do a lot more commercials. So, and I... Uh, went to an open call for the Millican show, which was the biggest industrial in Broadway at the time. All the best gypsies did it. And I got hired for that. So I did that. And then I did the Oldsmobile show <laughs> and danced my way across America as a Kugel peanut. Oh my and uh, so I was in New York for two years. How old were you? How old were you? Well, I didn't go to New York till I was 27. Honestly? So, yeah. That's kind of late, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Oh, well, my. it's late if you think it's too late. <laughs> if you don't think it's too late, it's not. That's right. That's right. So, you know, as you believe, it's delivered to you, baby. Well, okay, so, you're 27. I, and- I went out to California at who's yeah. urging, yours or your manager's? What? At who's urging, yours or your manager's? 
Uh, mine. I just, I don't know. Everybody was talking about going to New York and I mean, going to LA and it's funny. Everybody in LA wanted to come to New York. Everybody, there was a big joke that the actor in New York and the actor from LA met in Kansas and said, go back, go back. There's no work. <laughs> but there was for me, uh, I baked cookies, uh, which is what we do in Kansas when you want to go meet somebody. And, you know, back then you couldn't get on a lot. So I baked cookies and I wrapped them up and I went to the guard gate and I said, hi, I've got a lot of deliveries. He said, all right, go on through. Oh, you are so gutsy. So I... I'd have used another word if you weren't a woman. uh You are so gutsy. Well, and naive. And I'm a big uh, believer in naivete. So I took those cookies to all the casting directors at Universal. And the last one was um, Ruben Cannon, who was the head of casting. And he came out while I was there. He said, oh, chocolate chip cookies. They're my favorite. Come on in. Let's talk. So I was in there and I was telling him I just got there from Kansas. And a call came in from the set of Lucas Tanner that the girl playing the waitress was sick. And they needed to shoot the scene in the next hour what were they supposed to do? And he covered the phone and he went, what size do you wear? I said, what size do you need? (laughs) He said, can you fit in a four? And I thought, shoot, I wear a six. But I said, you bet. Um, (laughs) And I did it. Serendipity, there you go. You deliver the cookies and play a waitress. Yeah. And Lucas Tanner. Well, that's the way, you know, when you know what you want, and you're excited and in love with what what it is, the universe comes and plays with you. Yeah, but you know, it was just a part as a waitress. And did it thrill you? Uh, Well, it was a waitress who happened to have to take care of the big guest star when he had a heart attack. (laughs) Who was the guest star? Barry. Sullivan? That's the only- I think so. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. my gosh. I mean, he'd been a movie star. Yes, Barry know? Sullivan, yes. So, you know, I'm, I mean, I, there were three written lines, but I'm down there and the, <clears throat> I see this big meeting going on and the assistant director comes over to me and he says, Miss Williams, I said, it's Wallace. <laughs> <laughs> he said, um, Please don't touch the guest star. Oh, my. Oh I said, my. what? He's he's having a heart attack. How am I going <laughs> to help him if I can't touch him? And he said, yeah, I, I know it's pretty silly, but he's requesting that you don't touch him. Oh, well, my God. So the only way I could play it was like an airhead who was so discombobulated that I didn't know what to do because if I did know what to do, I'd touch him. Judy Holiday. Yeah. <laughs> oh my oh somebody, you know. That's funny. Now you want to you, your you, your inspiration 
and you drank her in a lot was the outstanding Catherine Hepburn. Now, Catherine Hepburn is a major star in movies and you're just in the television show as a waitress. Did you dream or envision that you would one day be in movies as big as you became? Of course, otherwise I wouldn't be here. And well, the first movies you seem to get for The Girl Next Door, unless the producers wanted somebody that they could scare easily, seemed to be a lot of fright movies. I mean, didn't... Yeah, uh, I've done a lot of horror movies. I'm known as a scream queen. That's right. And I'm proud of it. The first movie I did, however, was a religious film called All the King's Horses from Mark Four Pictures. Really? And it was about a battered wife Oops. who lived with an alcoholic. Wow. Now, that was my childhood growing up. Uh, hold it. Not that, not hold that it my mother hold ever got hit, but she got abused verbally and emotionally every night. Oh, hold it just a second, Angel, because from the the opening conversation, we got almost the impression that was sort of idyllic with your parents because your mother was involved with the church. And now it's evolving into something that's real. Yeah, it's a a real, my life is a dichotomy. So now I spend half my life doing horror films and the other half of my life healing people from fear. Well, the thing is that you must have felt very comfortable doing this film because of your religious background the ex- and the experience with your parents. That must have made you feel comfortable doing that film. Well, or not? I don't know if comfortable. I felt like I knew the material. Ah, there you, you know. But when it came to the point in the picture, because this was made for churches right where my mother has to give me the speech that even though he's just hit me and oh, I have a black wow. eye it's my job as a wife to find out how to make peace and everything in me went bs baby oh god well i just <laughs> you know, know I don't want to, I said somehow i felt in tune with you angel i don't know what it is but it's serendipity my father, I came from a very abusive family in Toronto long before it was popular. When my father was six, he so hated confronting my mother that he joined the Canadian Army in 1939 to go and fight the Germans instead. And my mother um, brought uncles into the house like they, like they were grapes. They came in bunches. They came yeah. to bed with her and booze with her and then to beat, with, beat her. And from the ages of six and, t- and, and 16, I was out on the streets by myself. Oh my and I God. lived most, when I as a kid, if I wasn't on a hockey rink or in jail or in a library, I was in a movie theater and I came to this country because of Frank Capra and Jimmy Stewart. I envisioned that. And I was deported twice, but I still kept coming back. And I got my citizenship papers from Senator John Tunney in California. And I had a totally unplanned life, but it turned out magical. I mean, yeah. totally, and, and, but you're, that's. I don't think it was an unplanned life. You know what you wanted. 
No, no. The only thing I really wanted is uh, uh, I couldn't be a hockey player, so I was talked out of that by a bad teacher. But I loved Jack Parr. Jack Parr was by far the best late night talk show host on yeah. television, and he opened his. And I didn't know that people talked to one another, dear. I thought they fought or screamed or cursed or punched. And here he had these great conversations with John Kennedy and William Buckley and Gore Vidal. It was just so thrilling to me. So I wanted to have a talk show. And the way to do it was to become a comic because he did an opening. So that's why I did it. But I never. it was only because, it's funny, I never looked for fame and fortune. I was always looking for me. So when I would interview wonderful people like yourself in the beginning, I figured I could learn something to live a better life, okay? And I learned so much from you. Now, I'm going to get to the thing that made you the most famous. And it's that magnificent film by Steven Spielberg. No, Steven's first movie was The Sugarland Express. Mm-hmm. And I was just starting as a critic and uh, the first one in America to do it, by the way. And I said at the end of the review, if this young man continues to direct films the way he did this, his entire career would be a Sugarland Express. So he called me and he said he'd cut it out and he put it up in his office. And I was one of the few people he ever gave a conversation to. But he made this wonderful movie called E.T., and you were the star of E.T. So the question that I wanted to ask you was what movie that were you in that had the most profound intellectual or emotional effect on your life that might have changed your life? And I don't know why I'm asking it because I think it might have been this film. Was it? Yes, but not in ways that you're envisioning in what ways well um there were a lot of challenges with et and when i was little it was pounded into my head that you should never have more than you need that you shouldn't be too big god doesn't love that um shouldn't make a lot of money god doesn't love that Oh, wow. So here comes E.T. I'm catapulted to stardom. Uh, I made, for me at that time, a lot of money. And everything in D, the little girl in D went, oh, I have to get small again. Oh, wow. Because uh, of all the things my little girl had been taught. So it was a real journey finding out the truth of who I really was and the truth of what creation really is. And how did you find that truth? And well, then, hold on, did, hold okay. on. And I, I really had to forgive my family for teaching me all these limiting beliefs. Because I I love my family. We are a close, close, close family. But they were wrong. And a lot of us are teaching our children still today to be smaller 
and hold themselves down and not know how magnificent they are and claim how magnificent they are joyfully. Um, so I, uh, I started studying philosophy and I met my husband, Christopher Stone, and he was involved in this wonderful philosophy called conceptology. And then I was led to the science of mind churches, which is the power of your thought creates your life. And then I was led to studying a lot of brain science. And then I started channeling. How do you mean channeling? Shirley MacLaine talked about channeling all the time. Oh, well, first and... of all, anybody can channel. But what channeling is, is that you open yourself up to receive all the information that's available to everybody. You know who said that? You probably have heard about this and stuttering, studying this, and it had a profound impact on me. It was Nicholas Tesla. Yeah. Now, I personally feel that Nicholas Tesla, above Einstein and Michelangelo and anyone, he was by far the world's creative, the most creative genius who ever lived. I mean, everything we enjoy now electronically or technologically is something that he had developed. He had hundreds of patents. He said he never invented anything. That's he right. said he would sit down, open up his mind. And this is his exact phrase. He said, the universe would put pictures into my head. The yeah. inventions were complete. All the architectural dimensions were there. And I became a stenographer. I took out a pencil and a piece of paper and wrote down what the universe delivered to me. He Einstein said, said the same thing. Well, he said is, all his great inventions came from his imagination. Exactly, exactly. But you know, the thing that we are not taught at all in any of our schools, it wasn't even taught. Canadian schools are by far way ahead of American schools, but even then that wasn't, you're not a taught how to think and imagine. You're just taught facts, yeah. things to do. So and you get you're definitely not taught that your heart is your most powerful tool. Well, how would, no, wouldn't your mind be the most no. powerful tool? Your mind is made to doubt and question. But, but your heart doesn't think. Oh, yeah. You go, go to the uh, Heart Map Institute. And look at all everything that they have researched. The heart has a brain. The brain has a heart. Oh. Now, was it was, was together, not was, the mind, but the brain? When the brain and the heart work together, was Chris was Chris an actor? Who? Your husband, your first husband. Oh, sure. He was an actor. Yeah. And what happened to Chris? Uh, he died of a heart attack at fifty-five. Oh, that's so young. And it, you yeah, know, pretty it, young. It seems shocking when you talk about the fact that the heart is everything and then he dies of a heart attack and he's the one that helped you open up your heart. So here you are making this enormous amount of money and this fame and ET and you're curling up in this cocoon of, well, I, I shouldn't be enjoying this so much. 
What is it that brought you out of this cocoon and turned you into this magnificent butterfly? Teaching. I opened my own acting studio. At that time? Uh, Right after I did Cujo. Yeah. Really? Uh Uh-huh. And I had one of the uh, largest studios in town for 18 years. And that is when... When Chris died, I dropped to my knees and I had just opened the studio. And I said to God, I don't want to be a victim. I I don't want to be pissed off the rest of my life. I want a way we can heal ourselves. And like that, I got my first message, which was, Use the light within you to heal yourself. And I'm still learning and expanding on what that means. Well, that was then I would go in to teach, and I would people would be three lines into a scene, and I would get a message about something in their childhood or or something that happened with a teacher. I started getting all this information. In other words, you were almost psychic. Well, if you got those messages, you have to be psychic. Well, you can call it psychic. I call it channeling. Uh Um, Psychics do get, can extrapolate uh, information from your energy. Yes, but it's usually... For example, I had a psychic tell me that I was going to have an affair right in front of Christopher. Ooh. And I said, oh, I don't think so. I don't want to die yet. <laughs> <laughs> but that summer, I did Annie Get Your Gun. I had a love affair with Frank, and my husband was in the audience. Oh, my gosh. So she got a piece of the information. But she didn't get the highest message. What my work is about is that I'm able to go into a person's energy and extrapolate where their blocks are, where their limiting beliefs are, what age it started, who it started with, so that they really can take charge of reprogramming, if you will, their brain. Now, you become this excellent acting teacher. Did it bring to mind the fact that when you were an extremely young girl still in Kansas, that you were a teacher and you may have been a born teacher? You know, I, I, I've taught all my life. I, before I left Kansas, I taught dance. Um, I'm teaching now in my healing work. I love to teach and I'm, I'm really good at it because I am the girl next door, because I can say it simply. And that's why I'm excited about my new book, because creation is simple. Manifesting what you want in your life is simple, but you have to know the simple things to follow so that you can put it into practice. You know something, Dee, very, very honestly, there have been some great men, teachers, Norman Vincent Peale, I could name a number of public speakers who are today or 
multimillionaires. To me, by far the most effective is you. Oh, uh, it, oh it, my it, gosh! Thank no, you. It, it's true. It's absolutely true. And I, I have a very, very tough question to ask you because, Uh-oh. first of all, you had being an actress. It's an actual thing for you to speak. But if you're going to get out there and help people as you do all around the world, help improve and understand their lives, that's going to take a lot of gumption on your part because it's totally different from being an actress. Now you're being somebody that is literally like a minister, like a Jesus, like a disciple, no, whatever. No. Impro- no, improving people's life. When, well, yeah. was the, when was the first time? You made the choice to do that because I have an extremely tough question to ask you and you're the only one I could ask it of. You know, I I just think I was born this way. I was born wanting to give. But and you get but you give 24 hours a day and you never seem to run out of energy. So now I'm gonna Well, add- I do. I just don't <laughs> let people know it. Well I do. I have a lot of energy. I will be 73 in December. And my daughter says, My God, mom, you do more than my friends who are 32. There is no question about but that. But you know, when you when you eliminate all the the fear and the anger and the judgment from your energetic system, you're filled with more energy. Well, you're, you, know, you I, look younger, you, you love life. You want to create, you just want to get out and create as much as you can. Well, I have always been compelled to do that. I'm 88 and everybody asks me, well, what keeps you going? And I hate to tell you this, but it's rage. That keeps me going because there's so much to be, well, Angel, because there's so much to be angry at. No. Well, well, let me tell you, and this is brain science. Okay. As well as, as religion and spirituality, they're all saying the same thing. Whatever you focus on, you create more of. Well, you know, uh, when I was struggling uh, as a semi-orphan kid and as a comic, I, rem- I remember Freud saying, the only thing that will keep you alive is love. And if it's, and you've said the same thing. And if it's yep. not love of another human being, it has to be love of your work. And love uh, of yourself. Well, yes. Yeah, so, so I love the work that I do. And of course, I never wanted to get married because I didn't think I... I, I didn't think I was capable of loving somebody because of my background. And I met the most fabulous woman in the world who was a professional singer and a dancer, still married after 55 years, happily married, never wanted a child because I thought, you know, God, you know, I, I, I had a horrible childhood. I don't want to treat him like that. Accidentally had a son, one of three geniuses that I know. Okay, so that, that is the thing that keeps me going. And, and I just love what I so do. Why are you focused on rage when you have all this great stuff in your life? Well, because partially it, it partially it's a joke because it's a reaction to what's going on around us. So this is my question. Yes, But John, no, wait. <laughs> okay. Wait, if you are in reaction, you are out of creation. 
If you are in reaction to somebody or something else out there, they own you. Oh, okay, let me ask you this question then. Because I think humor is one of the great salvations of humor. Absolutely. Okay, so uh, let, what would you say? I remember a few years ago, you know, ever since 1917, the United States has been bashing the Soviet Union, right? And of course, uh, when Trump was president, they were bashing the Soviet Union again. And I wrote this joke and I said, well, we finally have proof that Putin is a liar. He called Trump a genius. Now, that's very, very (laughs) funny. Okay. And I lost 500. Okay. I lost 500. uh, Facebook friends over that, but fortunately, I had 500 more show up. So this is the question I have to ask of you, and you're the only one I could ask. Oh, dear God. Okay, so listen, uh, and I know you'll, you'll do a wonderful job, because you are the only one out there who is really talking to people about how to adjust to today's world find themselves and to find the happiness that is in them and let their hearts beat for them. The truth is, you were just a young, young teenager in the 60s, very young, uh, and you got the, some, yeah, I think you got your part in Lucas Tanner uh, in the early 70s, mm-hmm. and you'd be just still a, a young... Late 70s, yeah. Okay, I, I was older. I experienced it. The 60s. There are Americans on the street demonstrating for civil rights and against oppression to minorities. In the 70s, there were millions of people on the street demonstrating the fraudulence of the Vietnam War. These people who were battling one another never called each other assholes or idiots in the 60s and the 70s. And if there was any violence visited on them, it was violence of the police against the demonstrators. Now we fast forward. Here you have January 6th and you see Americans attacking other Americans. And my question to you is this. I have never seen the 60s and the 70s were awful, but they were somehow still united. We live in now the most disunited country, and this is not an opinion, this is an observation, since Donald Trump became the president and the ex-president. Oh, oh, sorry, can you say that sentence again? Yes, we have become a politically and personally divided country since Donald Trump became president and the ex-president. Somebody who was very high up and in charge of our country, gave us permission to exhibit the worst parts of ourselves. Oh, my God. You know what? My wife said that. She said, you know, the best thing about Trump being president, he allowed all the rottenness to come to the surface. So the question I have is this, Angel, and it is important because I I play golf with a guy who's uh, in his 60s, who's one of the managers of the major hotels in town. He and his brother haven't spoken for five years because one of them voted for Trump. I've seen divorces. I've seen people's lifetime of work destroyed. Yes, I, know. I have seen marriages ruined. I saw two of my close women friends who loved shared men, shared clothing. They don't speak to any of one another anymore. I think 
And, you know, on mainstream media, I do see nothing inspiring at all. I don't see one inspiring human being again. And on... Well, on you're not eight, looking very hard then, John. Well, I, I try to... I only look at a few channels, so I'm not looking hard enough. You're right. And in, in Facebook, Angel, I see nothing but incivility. I don't see conversation. So why are you looking there, John? Uh, oh, Do you oh. understand that your perception will draw to you everything that you're seeing? Oh, okay. So then this is the question, Angel. We see that the rich are definitely getting richer and the middle class is disappearing. So the problems amongst the middle class people who are probably your biggest audience and need to talk to you the most, they, I don't know how a family of three or four ever gets by in America now, quite honestly. What's your question? And the question is, how do you advise somebody to find themselves and live in a better life when they're living in a society that seems politically and personally polluted? That's that's the question. Okay. My answer would be to stop at the end of how do you advise people to live a more loving and profitable life? Oh, Because when you add all the other stuff to it, you see, your brain thinks in pictures. So if you're saying, how can I not focus on all the horrible shit that's going on out there? (laughs) What does your brain see? Just horrible shit. And you know what, Angel? I must tell you, that is why one of the reasons I became a comic is because I wanted to turn that horrible shit into funny fertilizer. And I, <laughs> succeed, and I succeeded at it. So in that way, I must tell you, God, this sounds egomaniacal. And I'm ashamed of saying it when you talk of channeling. My wife has said to me often, you know who you channel? I said, what are you talking about channeling? It's not like Shirley MacLaine. She said, you channel Mark Twain. She said, you write stuff that Mark Twain writes. And, I lo- and, you know, Facebook has a way of sending you a message that's five years old, and they say, you know, take yeah. a look at this, okay? And I can't, re- I can't remember even writing it. It was about, you may remember the, uh, the, the growth of this thing called Q or QAnon about uh, four or five years ago. Well, my, my webmaster went down the Trump rabbit hole and destroyed 45 years of all of my work in television, okay? And it didn't bother me at all because somebody came to my rescue and rebuilt it. I mean, that's how magical my life was been. But I told my yeah. friend before he did that, his name was David. I won't give you his last name because I don't want to hurt his feelings. I said, David, all you have to do is read Q and understand why it's not called IQ. Well, <laughs> that's something Mark Twain would say. And I must tell you, David, yeah, I, I don't... I think your wife's right on. But well, let me know, give I, everybody... To answer your question, let me give everybody the quickest way they can redirect themselves and their perceptions and their focus, okay? So right now, everybody think about all the crap that's going on out there. (laughs) 
you know, and everybody that punching people on airplanes and the police are killing people. Yeah, we just let's just get all up in it. Now, I want everybody to pick a love place. And it's so easy. A love place is anything that makes you smile and makes your heart open. As soon as you think of it, I go right to my dog. Oh. You can pick a beautiful place in nature, a newborn baby. So everybody just take a minute and find your love place. It's in your heart. Just find your love place and think about how it makes you feel. Well, you know what? Which which one would you rather live in? The rage and the anger or the place of love and feeling good, which will create everything you want in your life. The rage and anger will push it all away. Well, love begins with L. Laughter begins with L. And there's an old, old adage called laughter is the best medicine. Yeah. I'm going to tell you a little quick story. Opens your heart. Yeah, listen, I'm going to tell you a little quick story, sweetheart. His name is Blair Murdoch. He is Canada's most successful game show producer. He is one of these geniuses with computers, okay, like Zuckerberg, even when he was in his middle 30s, he invented something that somebody paid him millions of dollars for. So like a lot of people get money, oh, I want to get into show business. So he bought the rights to the Liars Club. It was a famous uh, game show decades ago. In any event, uh, he needed to have Canadian content. And he wanted Alan Thicke, but Alan Thicke was busy doing a talk show. And so Alan said, hey, hold it, my friend Johnny Barber, I think he's a Canadian. Give him a call. So he called me. I end up hosting the show. I end up being on the panel. It's a huge hit. I lived two years in Canada. It was wonderful. Anyway, he is now 70. He's your age. Exactly. (laughs) Oh, he's so young. Yeah, okay. Well, he, he you'd be stunned. I wrote my autobiography uh, three or four years ago. It's called Your Mother's Not a Virgin. The bump yeah. Of, yeah, the mother. <laughs> okay, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to send you an autograph copy and even though you're a, a star and a hero in show business, it's the best book ever written about anybody in show business. The subtitle it's a bumpy life and times of the Canadian dropout who changed the face of American television. So anyway, Blair calls me three and a half years ago when it comes out. And he's got this sad sounding voice. And he asked me, did you write about me in your book? And I said, of course, it was a, just a great time. He said, would you send me a copy? I said, I'll put it in the mail right away. He said, no, could you Federal Express it? I said, yeah, it costs about 68 bucks, but I'll, I'll send it to you. Why do you want it so quick? And he said, I have pancreatic cancer. And, you know, that's a killer. Nobody seems to Bill Hicks died of pancreatic cancer when he was in his 30s. And I thought, oh, my God. So I sent it off to him right away. I get a note from him two days later. He laughed so hard at the part about him and the rest of it. Started reading the book. He read the whole book in a week. He said, I'm going to Mexico to try some alternative medicine, see if I can live a different kind of a life. And I'm going to commute back and forth between his new wife in Vancouver and, and there. And I got a note from him the other day 
I posted on my Facebook, there is remission in his cancer because he spends so much time now just laughing at the things yeah. he loves. So there you go. You That's are right. You are absolutely right. right. I know. I teach it every day. I write about it in my new book. Okay, hold up your new book again. Born, Giving Birth to a New You. And you can pre-order it right now. And you'll be one of the first to get it December 1st. I'm telling you, if you do what I write in this book, your life will change. It will. I don't want my life to. Hey, listen, I'm telling you something. The owners of BBS, where I do this show, and they carry your show, by the yes, way. Yes, they do. And they love you. It's, one of, it's their largest audience getting your show. I have one of the smallest. And so he called me the other day and he said, I have some great ideas on how to improve the look of your show for next year. And I said, hey, hold it. I consider myself an optimist because I'm looking forward to what I might have for breakfast tomorrow. I'm 88, okay? So breakfast is good enough future for me. Well, I want to be you when I grow up. Well, listen, I'm telling you something. You, you're probably, I haven't seen your daughter, but I'm a, I bet you, you look every bit as young as your daughter. Not to say that your daughter's looking old, but you. Well, too. it's pretty uh, apple tree, apple tree. Yeah. Well, you look, <laughs> you look, you look fantastic, and I must tell you, the only other woman I've come across that is close to having your soul is my wife. You know, I'm a huge fan of talent. I'm a huge fan of intellect, but above all is character. Yes. Nobody <laughs> on the planet has more character than. My wife. I mean, the oh, two, God lover. Well, God the worst her. angel. The worst people in the world to be married to are comics and golfers, and I am both. You know, because <laughs> they're so, you know, they're, they're so involved with themselves. And there were literally times when I would wake up and turn to my wife, and I'd say, "You're still here." <laughs> so, so there you go. Anyway, I can't thank you enough. You have. Made my oh, day. This has been a lot of fun. I am so glad we got it on. So. Well, listen, I must tell you, not only did you make my day, young lady, you've made help make the rest of my life. Oh, yes. And you were going to help make the rest of the life for everybody who is seeing you right now. If they go, and it's like your fifth or sixth book for crying out loud. Yeah, it's my sixth book. Yeah. There you go. And it's called Born. Born. Well, and you know, that's better than being reborn because to say you're reborn is like you made a mistake the first time. Yeah, <laughs> we are born in every single solitary moment of creation. Well, Just let go of all your old stories. You don't need them anymore. Start writing the one, you know, start writing the set you want to perform today. Right, John? Well, I must tell you. I wish I could hug you. Honest to God, you're <laughs> all. So there you go. I know. <laughs> there you go. You're off to do something wonderful. And I, I just, I hope we can do this again in a couple of months, you know? Okay. 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 You, okay. You have a wonderful, wonderful time. And again, thank everybody around you for making this possible for me and my audience, because they're going to adore you. Thank you. Thank you. We hope we've touched some hearts today.
you did definitely touch some eyes too by the way <laughs> have a great thank day. you john have a safe trip dear okay thanks bye-bye doug i must tell you that woman is absolutely fantastic and you uh, and your audiences are so lucky to be broadcasting her show. Absolutely. She's not only fantastic, she's a wonderful host on the network, um, wonderful personality. Her life is really about changing other people's lives for the better. And uh, you've got to take your hats off to a lady with her beauty and intelligence and will to do uh, good for everybody around her. Well, she certainly made our show better. And in three weeks, guess what? I may get to see her and meet her. Well, then you're one very lucky man. Yes. Well, you're supposed to say, where is that, John? Where is that will be? The Hollywood Heritage Museum, which is at 1660 North Highland Avenue in Hollywood, is holding this massive book fair. And at this fair will be 25 or 30 very famous movie stars or television personalities, people in, uh, related to show business who will be setting up stalls and signing their books. And Dee will be there signing and selling her already six bestsellers. And yours truly, I will be there to sign and sell uh, Your Mother's Not a Virgin and my second book, which the wittiest man in America is a Canadian and also Carol Honig, who was a wonderful guest on this show last week, is going to be there selling the greatest reviews I ever read, and I must tell you in this, is a fantastic, unexpected, colorful review of uh, close encounters of a close kind, which I think, uh, th- which I think you really, really love. And then also, hopefully, the author of this book here, who is our next guest, the author is a guy named Kevin Guest. The book is called Audienceology. And this, Kevin, is the guru that is the leading researcher with audiences that helps the major directors and writers and producers and movie stars improve the endings or the contents of their film films to make them much more successful with the public. And some of the stories in here, which you will hear in the next episode of Talking Movies, are absolutely fabulous and you'll see why Doug I said to him you should actually retitle this it sounds like a textbook audiology you should retitle it kill the bitch so anyway (laughs) until the next episode of talking movies stay well and good luck welcome to AM your question is Jim please I just wanted to say hi and I think he's a very good actor well, he appreciates that, I'm sure. That's very and kind And I of think you are a doll. I just love you. Are you talking, to, uh, talking to you? Are you talking to Jim, man? Oh, the one that answers, the one that said hello, uh, you're on AM. You are really good. I uh, think you're a doll. I mean, that's fantastic to be sitting here with Jim Grant. <laughs> there you oh, go. That's true. You want to ask me some questions, Jim? No, no. You're, uh, <laughs>